So this morning is Trinity Sunday. Last week was Pentecost. This morning is Trinity Sunday. At which point um, you might say, well, isn't every Sunday in some sense Trinity Sunday? Uh, we begin our services welcoming one another in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I conclude the sermon in the same way, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, the Father sends the Son to gather us up as His body, and by the Spirit empower us to share in His life. Um, everything that exists, exists by will of the Trinity. So this particular Sunday doesn't single that theme out um, inappropriately, I don't think, because the, the invitation is to focus on some of the theophanies in Scripture where we meet and see uh, a greater fullness of God's life revealed, the one God revealed at, in three persons. And, uh, you know, the, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. That particular word isn't there. Uh, but it is how we have come to speak of the triune God, the one God in three persons whom we confess. And we can see instances within the Scriptures where the Trinity is unveiled, revealed. Uh, and, and one of those, of course, probably the most famous of those, is in Christ's baptism. All right, so here is the incarnate Word, the incarnate Son, Jesus, in the water of the Jordan River. He's on center stage, we might say. And then the voice of the, sp the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then we see the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of the dove. And so we see there Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all involved. Um, that might be the most well-known theophany, sort of the unveiling, the revelation of the Trinity within time and space insofar as we're able to perceive. This morning's text kind of mirrors that passage. The story of Christ's baptism um, in many ways is um, represented, but with different emphases, in the story of the transfiguration, the account of Christ climbing the mountain with the disciples, uh, transfigured as light before them, and then again, the familiar theme of the voice speaking from heaven, and then the Holy Spirit descending, this time not in the form of a dove, but um, in the form of the cloud of glory that is filled with light and gathers in and rests upon the disciples. And so this morning, we're thinking about the Trinity. We're thinking about these themes. Uh, we're remembering these stories from Scripture. So I want to invite you to listen carefully and listen well to uh, this most important story and account of the miracle of Christ's transfiguration before them. So this is from Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. O heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fill us all things, treasury of goodness and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every stain. And save our souls, O good one. O Holy Spirit, we pray that even as you descended upon the apostles, you would fall upon us. That as we open the words of these holy scriptures, we too might be confronted by the radiant Christ. And Lord Jesus, seeing you, we pray that we might fall at your feet in worship and be offered up as your servants and as your friends. May we receive you and live in you. And would you dwell in us this day? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, roughly the same sermon, but slightly different. Uh, I know at least one person who had to listen this morning already. So I'm, I'm going to begin <laughs> differently this morning. And I want to I uh, invite you to, to listen just for a moment uh, to Alexander Schmemann, a name you've heard me say before. Um, and an experience that he had. And I want you to be thinking about the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, as they go up the mountain, as they see Jesus, and they ha- as they have this moment of encounter with the living Lord of heaven and earth. Maybe you haven't experienced exactly what they did, but maybe you've caught a glimpse here and there of something similar. I always find it wonderful to share those stories, and Alexander Schmemann has a story to share with us. So listen, just at one of his journal entries... On Holy Saturday, that's the day after Good Friday, the crucifixion, and the day before Easter Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection. This is on Holy Saturday. He was in Paris. That Holy Saturday in Paris, I was standing on my balcony before going to church. I saw a car passing by. And there was a quick, blinding reflection of sunlight from one of the windows. All I have ever felt or learned about Holy Saturday and through that day about the essence of Christianity, all that I have tried to say or write has always been an inner need to transmit to myself and to others what burst forth what was illumined and revealed to me in that moment. One speaks about this when one speaks of eternity. Eternity is not the negation of time, but time's absolute wholeness, gathering, and restoration. Eternal life is not what begins after temporal life. It is the eternal presence of the totality of life. I'm reading 
that book for a class I'm taking. And one of my teachers also offered up a reflection of an experience that he had had uh, when he went with his family out west and was traveling uh, through this area where there was an abandoned ghost town. Old, old mining town, the buildings are still standing, nobody's living there. It's like stepping back in time. And he and his family wandered through this ghost town, uh, this abandoned village, and walked around and looked at all the sites. And at a certain point, he and his wife were there and his three girls. There's a reason I like this guy, you know. Um, they, they, they were there and they were sort of milling about. And he sat down on an old bench that just happened to be there outside a store. And he says, a beautiful day. I think it was in Colorado. The sky's blue. The day's warm. Uh, his children are there around him. And he said, the air got still. And the reflection of the sunlight was, was kind of bouncing off, off the, the buildings and the space where he was. And he had this moment that he expressed in a similar way as a fullness of time coming together. Uh, a, a fullness of a sudden experience of God's presence with him, with them, um, more than he could explain happening in that space and in that place. A moment of transfiguration, you might say, when the world around him began to reflect the light of the risen Christ, when his experience of that place and the people he was with and of God's presence with him allowed him to see just a little more clearly the beauty of God around him, the beauty of life itself, and the wonder of it all. I think his experience is something similar in kind to Alexander Schmemann's experience. Who would have ever guessed that, you know, John Burgess would sit on a bench in an abandoned ghost town and have this moment? Who would have guessed that Alexander Schmemann would walk out on his balcony in Paris, of all places, with all the hustle and bustle and noise, but would catch a glimpse of a flashing light off a windshield? And then it would summarize for him in that moment of encounter everything he'd ever tried to say or write about the Christian life, about the meaning of what God has done for us and with us? I mean, who would have guessed those things? So I'm, I'm going to be starting, um, and it's kind of in conversation with this class I've taken. It's been meaningful to me. Um, a series that we're going to just kind of refer to as, as, as trying to learn to see. To learn to see more clearly God with us. To learn to see more clearly the light of Christ around us, within us, um, in the created world in one another, in the life of our church. And um, certainly as we think about these moments, John Burgess or Alexander Schmemann have had, maybe as you think, maybe something's come to mind for you, an experience that you have had. I would certainly categorize these things as just moments of grace, right? I mean, who, who would have guessed? Could they have forced that? No, I don't think so. It was a gift that was given. And yet there is also in the Christian life sort of a pattern that Jesus gives to us where we can learn to see more clearly. And so this account of the transfiguration will kind of sum that up for us in a moment. But I want us to think about the pattern just for a moment. And it's something that you've heard me say, but we'll, we'll say it again. I asked this morning in the early service, do you remember saying, me saying any of this? 
raise your hand and nobody raised their hand. So I was like, okay, we'll say it again. Um, hopefully a good reminder. So let's just start with worship. Uh, in worship, there's a reason we do the things we do in the order in which we do them. It's training us to see, actually. Often we go through the motions and we don't think about it much, but there's a pattern. And the pattern of worship corresponds to the, the pattern of Christian life as a whole. Here's the pattern. This is what I hope you might remember. Um, purification, illumination, and perfection or union. Purification, illumination, and union with Christ. Olivia remembered me saying that before. That's awesome. I see that hand. Thank you, Olivia. Anybody else? Okay, all right. So we got a few. That's good. Um, so you'll notice when we come into worship on Sunday mornings, uh, very quickly, we pray a prayer of confession. Uh, to enter into God's presence requires our purification, right? We need to be cleansed. Often at the back of the church, at the entrance to the sanctuary, we don't quite have enough room for this, but often the, the baptismal font will be positioned there so that when you walk into the space, when you walk into worship, you're reminded immediately that your entrance and participation in God's life comes through His washing you and purifying you in the waters of baptism, your death and resurrection in Jesus. That marks the beginning. And then we pray the prayer of confession. We're reminded of God's forgiveness. This beginning section is this time of, of purification. The middle section, the central aspect of worship, is focused on illumination. Jesus is the light of the world. right? In order for us to see and to know God, His light must first shine. Um, there's a, a, a physical analogy here. You have eyes, right? And most of them see. But if there's no light, it doesn't matter how healthy your eyes are. You can't see anything. You have to have light reflecting into your eyes that you might actually perceive the world around you. And so coming to the scripture, coming to this time of reading the word, proclaiming the word in the sermon, is a time where, interestingly enough, through listening to the son... What did the voice of the Father say? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Through listening to the Word made flesh, our eyes are able to see more clearly the light of Christ around us. So the central uh, portion of the, the worship service has to do with learning to see, with illumination, with the light of Christ shining upon us that we might understand God, ourselves, the world, and so on. So we've got purification, baptism, illumination, the sermon as the Word is proclaimed, and union, which takes place at the table. At the end of the service, the highest aspect, the, the highest part of our worship is when we come to the table and Christ actually unites us with himself through the sacrament. Um, we come to share in his life as we receive the body and blood of the Lord in the power of the Spirit. So the pattern of our worship corresponds to your whole Christian life. Everything you might ever try to say or think about it corresponds to these things. Now, sometimes in your life, you might realize, I need to grow in repentance, or I need to become holier than I am. I need to set certain things aside and turn to the Lord. You need to focus on purification to a greater extent. These aren't necessarily strictly sequential, because in a given hour, we'll do all three of those things, right? Sometimes you'll feel like, I'm really growing in my understanding, my ability to, to see the Lord. And so you'll, you'll give uh, time and attention to that 
and learn to see more fully. And that's what I hope to do with this series. Uh, at times, your union with Christ will become overwhelming to you at different points. And you will, you will experience yourself being united to the Lord in powerful ways. Um, what I want you to see, right? The pattern of worship corresponds to the pattern of Christian life. But this brings us to our passage. This basic pattern, purification, illumination, and union with the Lord, is also the pattern of the gospel story. The gospel of Mark, let's say. That same pattern is evident in the life of Jesus. So I want to show that to you. So you can see over and over again how these things continue to, to, to um, offer us opportunity and a way forward to grow. Um, let's say, would you say them with me? Purification, illumination, perfection, just so we can, maybe next time you'll remember, not just Olivia. Okay, so, so purification, illumination, and perfection, or union with Jesus. Okay, so we first see this when Jesus appears on the scene. How does the Gospel of Mark begin? In Christ's baptism. The gospel begins with baptism, just like our worship does entering into the church, just like the Christian life starts when you're baptized and enter into the life of the church. Okay, so that makes sense, doesn't it? It begins in baptism where Jesus, though he is sinless, enters into that baptism for us so that from within our humanity, he can fulfill a faithful life on our behalf. The thing he begins to do immediately after this is to go around and proclaim this, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. This call for repentance, this call for purification, this call for, it's, the word is matanya uh, in, in Greek, which means um, like metamorphosis. A transformation is happening here in your very person as you repent, as you are purified, as you come to share in his life more fully. Then, that's the beginning of the gospel story. In Mark, the very center the exact middle of the gospel is the story of the transfiguration. Now, in the ancient world, when they were writing things, there was a familiar pattern, and the gospel doesn't strictly correspond to this of Mark, but um, it, was a, it was called a chiastic structure, like an X. And so you have things introduced in the beginning that are then mirrored in the end, but the center is the most important part of whatever is being communicated in a paragraph or a song or whatever. The center. What did Mark choose to put at the center of the gospel? Our story this morning. It is the place where Christ illumines the apostles. His light is revealed. He is revealed not to just be um, human or the, 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 a human Messiah, but also he's revealed to be divine. And he begins to glow with the glory of God, and that is transmitted. That's at the center. If you go to the end of the gospel, then you see union with Christ. So after this time of purification and illumination about who Jesus truly is, we come to union. As Christ, after his resurrection, comes to the apostles, allows them to touch his wounds, right? Remember Thomas? He says, my peace I give to you. He's giving them something that belongs to him, shares his peace. Uh, he comes to them, he breathes upon them, he gives them the gift of his own spirit so that they become a dwelling place for the spirit. The, his spirit lives within them and within the church. So there's a sharing, there's a uniting that takes place with his resurrected life and with the life of God. So you can see in the gospel, purification, repent and believe, 
illumination as, as the bridge between that call and the life of sharing in Jesus' resurrection appears on the Mount of Transfiguration and then a sharing, a union with God's life at the end. These are like really basic things that can help orient us to what are we actually doing as Christians? What is, what is the goal? What are the things that we can give our attention to in important ways that are going to help us make our way with Jesus? How does He invite us in? How does He challenge us to grow? Purification, illumination, and union. Give us a helpful framework. Clearly, for the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing on this section, learning to see, with illumination. And we're going to continue coming back um, time and time again to this idea of learning to see. Because if the story of the transfiguration is at the center of Mark's gospel, there's also sort of a middle section of Mark's gospel that is framed like this. There's a person who is blind, and Jesus comes and gives them sight. The story of the transfiguration is the middle of this section, and at the end, Bartimaeus, who is blind, is touched by Jesus, and he receives his sight. The section about learning to see Jesus is framed by Jesus coming and healing two people who can't see. You see how this is like kind of a theme, right? I mean, this is, this is the invitation that this story is giving us, this account of Christ's life is giving us. So I, that's my hope, that we can learn to see more, Jesus more clearly. And obviously enough, if this framing is true, we can't do this on our own. We need Christ to come to us and to touch us and to help us be able to see. Maybe our physical eyes can see, but let's see with the eyes of our heart. Um. I need to stop and not go too much further. But there's a, I'll just throw this much out there. There's, a, there's an aspect to the human person. There's a bo- you have a body, passions, your emotions, and so on. You have a heart or a, or a soul is the source of your will. And the highest aspect of your heart is something that we don't talk about very much, but it's called the noose. Uh, sometimes it's called the eyes of your heart or the highest aspect of your perception. It's a super, super rational aspect of your, of your ability to see. And in the history of the church, everybody who's talking about seeing the Lord is talking about the noetic perception that is a part of your central being. This is the place where you are able to commune with Christ, to see with the eyes of your heart in a spiritual way. And in order for that to happen, guess what they all say has to happen first? Purification. We have to have the eyes of our heart purified. Paul says we see in this world as through a glass dimly, right? It's like a darkened glass, like the shaded windows on your car. But one day we shall see clearly and face to face. So hopefully throughout this process, what we're trying to do is purify the eyes of our hearts together. Our story gives us an account of that. Four stages. Um, if you're interested in going on this journey, learning to see more clearly, traveling with Christ, here's, here's the pattern. Jesus takes some of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up on a high mountain. They go with him up to the top, and there they see him transfigured. 
Now, I want us to slow down just for a second and say, okay, in, let's, very basically, in order for them to go and follow Jesus and to be led by Jesus to the top of the mountain, what did they have to do? Like they had to leave the bottom. Like they had to leave one place to get to the other place. And so uh, in the spiritual writings of, uh, of the church, when they're talking about purification, when they're talking about traveling with Christ, when they're talking about ascending the mountain, two areas describe as categories leaving the bottom of the mountain. Detachment and dispassion. We're attached to things. You can't be attached to things in the world and ascend with Christ. In some measure, you have to be able to attach yourself most clearly and strongly to Jesus so that you're willing to go with him. The other aspect is your passions. Uh, Anger or pride or selfishness or envy or any of these things are called passions. In order to escape those passions, we have to become dispassionate. Our hearts need to be purified so that we can ascend. Jesus is the one who helps us with that each step of the way. Um, Let me illustrate it like this. Six, seven years ago, uh, we climbed the Profile Trail at Grandfather Mountain. Anybody ever done that? Been up the Profile Trail? You can park across from the Peddling Pig, right? They got a parking area there. And then you start at the bottom, you make your way up. I always thought the Peddling Pig location was strategic because you get back and you're hungry and, well, what are you going to do, right? So pretty, pretty, pretty wise there. But anyway, you park at the bottom and you start on the trail. And you're in there in the thickness of the rhododendron and the pass about this narrow and you're making your way and you're wandering back and forth and you're wondering, like, am I ever going to get to the top of this thing? You can't see out. The trees and the leaves kind of uh, hem you in. You can't see. You can't even see the top. You can't even see where you're going. You're just trusting that the path is taking you there, right? Uh, It's easy to get kind of discombobulated and and a little bit lost in all the mess, the vegetation. Uh, My brother-in-law, Zach, worked a job where part of what he had to do was go through rhododendron thickets all day, and so he despises them. And I was like, that is a great picture, often, of what our lives look like when we're just struggling to make it through. When the messiness of life, the distractions, the things hem us in, blind our sight from where we want to go, and we just have to trust that Jesus is leading us and try to stay with him along the way. But as you go up, some interesting things will begin to happen. A space will open up. The rhododendron thins out a little bit. You'll catch a glimpse of a far-off vista. You'll be able to catch, there'll be like an opening in the trees and you can see out and you're like, wow, look how far we've come. You can even maybe look back and see your car or see where you started and say, this is actually, I didn't know that I'd come as far as I have. The light will shine in through the trees and and open up a, a more, a clearer way for you. And eventually you'll find your way at Callaway Peak, right? And once you get there, you can see everything. I think you can see the whole world from up there, right? Um, everything begins to come into focus. You're standing in the light as it shines above you. You can look back at every place you've been. You can see the thickets that you got stuck in. You may even be able to look back and say, I slogged my way through that thicket for about 10 minutes, but this path could have brought me around it so much easier. (laughs) Huh. Next time, I'll know what to do better. 
You gain perspective on your life. You gain perspective on the way that Jesus has been leading you. Sometimes you look back and say, it is a true miracle. I even made it through that at all. Christ was with me, showing me the way. So you can, you can see, in just in this image, in this metaphor, climbing the mountain, how it does give perspective on your life. You, see how, you can look out and you can see how everything fits together. You see the geography of things. But that journey doesn't come without a lot of effort, right? You have to work to get there. But it's beautiful at the top. That's what Peter, James, and John discover. As they come to the top of the mountain, they see Jesus. The light shines upon them. They're at the highest point, spiritually speaking, aren't they? They see Jesus transfigured before them. They see him uh, not only in his humanity, but in his divinity as well. They see him as he is. The highest spiritual place you could be. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus to either side. And Peter, James, and John, in this moment, do what everybody who ever meets the Lord in some capacity or an angel of the Lord in Scripture, if you read it, it happens every time. They do the same thing everyone else does. They fall on their face. <clears throat> the encounter is overwhelming. The power and the majesty and the, 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 the transcendent glory of Jesus is too much for them to take in. They're, so they, they fall on their faces. There was a, um, a fellow named Rudolf Otto, 19th century, who describes the encounter with the living God as the mysterium tremendum at Fascinans, which means something like this. It, it is a great mystery which causes trembling. There, there is fearfulness involved here. That, you know, God, in his grace, really only allows us to experience his presence to the capacity that we can endure it. We can't experience the fullness of God, but when he does allow his presence to be felt and known, there is, uh, there is a power um, to the Lord. Uh, there, is a, there is a resplendent beauty to God that goes beyond our capacity to receive it. Um, it is the mysterium tremendum. And so, when you see this depicted in artwork, you know, it can't be depicted in artwork, but we have that picture in the library. James and John are typically facing down the mountain. They've fallen on their faces in fear, which does can have an element of like fear as we would think of it, but in the scriptures typically means reverence and awe, complete awe. They're facing the opposite way, but Peter, as Peter tends to do, is facing towards Jesus still on his face, and he's peeking, right? He's like, he, the mysterium tremendum <clears throat> et fascinans. It's fat, the presence of the Lord is fascinating. He can't not look. Here in the presence of this one, in Jesus, transfigured before him, is God's presence in the world, is the one for whom he's made. He can't turn away. He can't not look. Here's the one that his entire being is made for. What else could he be attached to? All he wants is to know this one here with him present. Mysterium Tremendum at Fascinans. We see that playing out in this encounter atop the mountain. Uh, the, the disciples show us both sides of that. Maybe you've experienced both sides of that. I don't know. 
but it is an, a human attempt to describe that encounter. Now, Peter gets it close to right, but as Peter's also want to do, he gets it a little bit wrong. And so, in this moment, uh, confronted with Jesus, seeing Elijah and Moses before him, the, the, the divine cloud comes down, and Peter says, Oh, it is so good that we're here together. Should I make for you three tents? One for you, Jesus. One for you, Elijah. And one for you, Moses. Now, I'm getting this from Origen, second century guy. And, and he's talking about um, how Peter makes the mistake of thinking that Jesus is so great that he is to be seen as on par with Moses and Elijah, the two most important figures in Israel's history, in God's relationship to Israel. He puts them on par with Moses and Elijah, so he wants to build three tents, three dwelling places, to honor them in some sense equally. And this is the moment, sort of as a means of correction, but also just as a means of declaring, in words that echo the words that the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism, this isn't another prophet. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so Origen says, the seeing Moses and Elijah to either side of Christ, Peter doesn't quite understand that the light is emanating from Christ. They're gathered into his light. Now saints, purified, illumined, made perfect with Jesus. But now he knows that the ultimate source of that life is Christ himself. And so Origen says something really neat. Moses summarizes in a person the law. The first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch. Elijah is like the greatest of the prophets. And so he summarizes that long section in the Old Testament that constitutes the prophets. And he says, he looks at Jesus, and the first thing that's described are his garments are transfigured. His garments are glorious. His garments are filled with light. And so Origen says his garments are Moses and Elijah, in a sense. His garments are the law and the prophets. Jesus has clothed himself with the scriptures. So when we want to meet the word, we can meet him here. These are his clothes that when you see Jesus truly then begin to glow with His light. They become like a burning bush that burns with the divine fire and light of the Lord, but aren't consumed. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, Origen was from Alexandria, so in Africa. Africa is like a serious, um, uh, seriously important place in the history of the church. In the early days of the church, uh, 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 um, one of two most important schools was a Alexandria. The other was in Antioch, just north of Israel. So Antioch focused especially on the literal meaning of things. Alexandria spoke more allegorically or symbolically about the words of the Scripture. And so we have here Origen saying, when you see Jesus in his garments transfigured, well, the Word appears to us in the garments of the, the Scripture, uh, in the Law and the Prophets. And they too shine with radiance if we have eyes to see. Purification, climbing the mountain, detachment, dispassion, leaving behind the things of this world that we might walk in our lives with Christ to the top where we can see Him by His grace as He truly is in ways that transfer our, transform our vision of other things. 
So now we can see not only Christ truly, but the word more clearly and the world around us more fully. And so Peter, James, and John have to go back. Jesus draws them out just as we're drawn out in worship, out of the confusion, out of the mess, the busyness of our lives. We're drawn into worship that we might come and be, have, have our vision clarified so that ultimately we can go back to see differently, to live more fully. You know, you guys probably had a list of things you could have done today other than coming to church to worship. Is that true? Or you like me and I, you just don't ever have anything to do. Everybody says I work one day a week, you know, so the rest of the week I'm just hanging out. <clears throat> right? So you might have had other things to do, but you, you set that aside and you have come to be illumined by the word so that you can be transformed in your sight in your love for God, in your life, and so that we can be sent back down. Peter, James, and John go back down the mountain, back into the world, back to live for Christ, seeing Him and seeing all things now as full of His glory. So wouldn't it be great if we give ourselves to purification, if we seek to give ourselves to the illumination of the Word, so that maybe, just maybe, we have more moments in our lives where the the light flashes off the windshield and a moment is transformed and we see the glory of the Lord Jesus with us and around us. Where we sit down on a bench with your family or your friends and suddenly all of eternity comes pressing in around you. I would like more of that. And if you take Christians seriously throughout the ages, they say this is what happens if you pursue the life with Christ, if you walk with Him up the mountain, if you give yourself fully and receive what he has to offer. I mean, that's a lot, but wouldn't it be awesome to do that together every week for the next few? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.